0: What's important to remember is like advanced machine learning is often something that just makes something that already exists a little bit better. It's not something that like enables you to do that thing in the first place. And so, you know, I do think that the music recommendations that Spotify makes Spotify you know X percent better. But it's not the like thing in itself that is the magic of Spotify. I think you know it's the sort of thing you built on top of it that makes it extra magic.
1: Welcome to the right track a podcast for people building data cultures. We will hear from leaders in engineering product and data as they share their frustrating and inspiring stories on building the best products for their customers by mastering outcome-driven development, self-serve analytics, and great data cultures. I am Stefania Olafsdottir, CEO and co-founder of AVO, the analytics governance platform changing how developers product managers and data scientists collaborate to plan track and govern their product analytics keep the conversation going with us in the right track community join us on the right in this episode i spoke with eric bernardson eric was early at spotify and built out their data team he originally joined to work on music recommendations, but ended up prioritizing more important things. Eventually, he did get to build the core recommendation system, making all of our lives better. And along the way, they built Luigi, which is one of the first major open source workflow schedulers, and we also used that at QuizUp. He later joined a company called Better as their CTO and employee number eight and built a tech team of eventually 300 people, including the data team. Now he is working on something new. And I think it's safe to say that we're all pretty excited for that reveal. Spotify's org structure was an inspiration for how we structured our teams at QuizUp and including how we thought about the data team. So it's a great pleasure to have Eric on the right track to talk about his experience building data cultures. We covered a lot of ground, including the mind blowing experience when you first try cohort analysis and find something unexpected. We also talked about how advanced machine learning should typically wait until you've fixed your data fundamentals, the data plumbing. And we talked about how and when you should prioritize that data plumbing that you can't ignore Including consistent event logging. We also discussed data team recruiting and org structures and how hiring the right people to your early stage data team is the most important factor for success. And for Eric, that means something like a technical data journalist, meaning people who, sure, they're good with numbers, they're okay with stats, they're okay in software engineering. But above all, they are driven by a pursuit of the truth and making an impact on the business. Listen in for Eric's thoughts on strategy when building and scaling a data team and data culture, and sit back and enjoy when he convinces you that simple things are usually far more impactful than complicated things. Hello, Eric, and welcome to The Right Track. Thank you. To... Give us all context. Could you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you got there?
0: Do you want the long story or the short story?
1: <laughs> I would love the long five-hour story, but maybe we can find some some okay. medium in between.
0: I, I'll try to condense it. I, so, I, I'm Eric Bernerson. I'm currently working on some random projects in data, but but sort of to give you you know a little bit longer context of how I ended up here. I. I'm from Sweden. I was doing a lot of programming competitions when I was young, and then when I was deciding to think about what to do after school, like uh, a lot of my friends at that time from school doing these programming competitions started at this obscure music streaming company called Spotify. <laughs> and I decided, like, I don't know what's going on, but like clearly they're hiring all these like smart people, so I want to go work with them and see what, and, and, and hopefully I'll, I'll enjoy it because there was a bunch of people that I really looked up to and really respected. So. I was able to convince Spotify to hire me to do music recommendations which kind of was a little bit of a joke cuz like I didn't even know anything about machine learning at that time but I think early on at Spotify like no one really knew anything and it was a good place to be cuz like you know the, the fact that like you know I didn't know anything, still meant like I was like the best person to do it in a certain way, like the least bad person. So, so I, I joined Spotify and started hacking on that and then relatively quickly realized that th- there was far more important things to do than focusing on music recommendations. So I actually stopped uh, doing that for a while and instead I, I spent about a year and a half building up uh, a data team. So we, we did a lot of sort of business and intelligence type stuff, working with a lot of different stakeholders across the business and fundraising and investors and, and, and also just product analytics I left briefly, went to hedge fund, and then actually came back to Spotify. But in New York, uh, we ended up spending another three and a half years uh, focusing this time on music recommendations. So I ended up building out the, the, and, and launching a number of features with music recommendations, built up a team of about 20 engineers... Uh, open source thing called Luigi, which is one of the first major open source uh, workflow schedulers,
1: which we used at QuizUp. Thank you. Nice. Yeah.
0: Yeah, a lot of people used it back then. I think now, like these days, like Airflow and other ones are, have taken over. But but so so did that open source matter thing called like Annoy. That's a lot of people used. But. Then I ended up leaving Spotify in 2015. I felt like I kind of wanted to go through the same journey again. I sort of missed the early days of Spotify and ended up joining a very early stage company as a CTO and the company was called Better. I was number eight or something like that. And I spent six years there building up a tech team of about uh, 300 people. Uh, In the end, I sort of realized I keep postponing the things I always wanted to do, which is to start my own company. And and so I, I... Parted ways with better and good terms and uh you know help them find a new CTO and all that stuff. And then, you know, since earlier this year I've been starting to play around with different data things and starting to look at the space and trying to figure out okay, what, what are the opportunities? Like what, what, what should I be working on? And I just started like doing a little bit more seriously. I, I finally have an office and I started to hire people and, and we have some protests we're working on, but but it's still pretty early stage.
1: Very exciting. Would you say stealth mode?
0: I would say stealth mode, but I I don't really like that term because like I feel like some companies like kind of try to create like a weird sort of hype out of being in stealth. Mode. At least like I felt like that a few years ago. To me, it's sort of just necessary evil. Like we just haven't found like a good pitch, and you know we're we're also building something that's like kind of complex, and it's going to take a long time working with various types of you know close stage close beta design partners to really figure out like how's it going to work.
1: Very exciting. I look forward to part two of this uh, conversation later when we can all learn a little bit more about this. Yeah, it'd be fun. I think everyone is dying to know what Eric does next.
0: I kind of want it to be something no one expects, like Uber for dog walking, because like everyone's like, <laughs> you know, what is he working on? Like,
1: <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much for that intro, Eric. I hope this sheds a light for everyone listening on how excited I am to be having this conversation, because there is a lot to dig in there, um, obviously. And you have a, a great experience and you've been in the space for a really long time and you've shaped a lot of discussions and you've also built huge teams. And so I'm excited to, to dive deeper into that backstory. Before we do, would you mind kicking us off with uh, some uh, real-life traumatizing data stories? <laughs> Maybe some ex- inspiring ones as well, um, but, you know, something frustrating.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so much of, like, frustration has really been, like, on the people side. Like, like I, I, I'm the kind of person, like, if, you know, something on the technical side breaks, like, it's actually, in a way, like, less stressful. I, I don't know. Like, there's been so many cases where you know we've done the wrong things, or or kind of in retrospect like mess things up. And I, I mean, I like some of the things comes to mind. Like, you know, in the company I worked at, like we used the wrong metrics to optimize something. You know, for for ad, like 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 basically like you know when you you're you're spending like millions and millions of dollars of ads, and and you're like optimizing for like you know account signups, but then you realize actually like, you know, transaction volume is like completely backwards. Like there's a lot of users who create accounts, but never actually, you know, like the uh, do anything. And, and so, yeah, like, you know, we, we discovered at some point, like there's this like almost like inverse correlation between like, you know, cost per accounts and, and like the, the ROI. And, and so that was like one example where like in looking back, like we should have like built out those data pipelines like much, much earlier. We probably wasted like $10 million, like, you know, just... Throwing like ad dollars on like completely broken channels because we didn't realize it. So I don't know. I have a lot of stories like that where I think you know in retrospect, like you know, if we just like thought a little bit smarter about like how we think about data, how we measure things, and what are the main metrics, like clearly we wouldn't have done all these. And and like I, I think you know a lot of companies go through this. It's probably a pretty normal story.
1: Yeah, I think that's 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 probably right. At least like when you're at the stage of spending millions of millions of dollars on ads, and then like I I guess a really Calling follow-up question for me here is, how did you then finally discover that you could probably be using a different metric? What was the trigger and, and what was your learning process for that?
0: I, it was just like a lot of plumbing. I mean, it was like very early. And so a lot of the like reason we hadn't d- done it was just like the data didn't quite e- exist. Like there was just like a lot of plumbing we had to do first. And so I, I, th- I think, you know, I, I don't know if there's like a general learning experience here, but like, I think, you know, I, I've... Almost every time when I've like sold these like plumbing things, I wish I would have just sold them like a year earlier. So uh, I, I, I think, you know, and, and I'm a very data driven person. I'm like, yo, we should like get all the data into the data warehouse as early as possible. But even for me, I'm like regretting all these times when I didn't do that. So to me, that's, you know, maybe goes along with I say like maybe, you know, already when you're like building the features and like starting and just getting off the ground like is a good time to start thinking about tracking and, and logging and like how you store events and, and all that stuff because because it you're going to realize very soon that it's actually very useful to have that data.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a very good point it's a really interesting problem though and it's like that scale up period when you're scaling up an organization it's just like over engineering it's like such a delicate balance of investing in something that is future proof or helps you in the future and you know that future self will thank you for it but what are you going to sacrifice instead i guess is the question
0: yeah it's super hard because like if you read like twitter like there's like 500 million like thought leaders like saying it's like oh when you're like 10 people that's the time to invest in like a chief happiness officer and, the, like, what, and like and if you follow like every single advice like that like, when are you actually going to build your startup? Exactly. Like, and, and so, like, I, I think, you know, to me, the most important thing is, like, you know, to learn which one of those, like, you can't ignore. Like, because, like, 99% of that advice is, like, probably wrong. Because, like, if you follow all of those advice, like, you're never going to actually do the work. Exactly. But but some of the things are actually very important to do. And so, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, you know, I don't want to make, like, any sweeping generalizations. But I find that that's, like, something that's, like, so hard to do. Is like, you know, defer everything about except the, like, absolutely necessary But like, but what are the things that are absolutely necessary right now? Like, I don't know. Like, it's it's hard, right?
1: Yeah. And this is something that I guess probably like, you know, this is the thing that experience gives you.
0: Yeah. I hope so.
1: (laughs) Exactly. But like, I mean, on that note, I mean, what is the right time to do it? I mean, because... It sounds like you've gone through a bunch of periods where like, oh, I wish I had invested in that a year ago. And you mentioned like logging events consistently or or start to think about like your plumbing, as you call them. What is realistically the time that you should have done it, for example?
0: I, I think the best answer like on the spot would be like, I think it's so dependent on like to what extent like data drives your like revenue and your costs. For a lot of types of companies, like if you're a B two B SaaS company, like it's actually very hard to like A B test or even know anything about. Like, so it's maybe in that case, like it doesn't matter, right? But if you're like doing, you know, consumer stuff where you have a lot of, you know, scale at what you're doing, if you're spending, you know, millions and millions on that dollars, like I, my my guess is like there's probably a set of factors like that that determine, like, yeah, in that case, like you better like really work on your data stack because that that has such massive impact on the bottom line.
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a good on-the-spot answer to a very difficult question.
0: Thank you.
1: <laughs> and I, I'll probably want to touch on that a little bit later on, like um, your experience with building a data team and um, when you to hire the right folks for that and, and where they fall into the organization and things like that. But thank you for sharing that frustrating story. Can you inspire us as well? A little bit.
0: A little bit. Basically, like one of the first things I did at Spotify, and this was like I was like straight out of school, was like, you know, early on at, at Spotify, like there was always this like debate like is the freemium model gonna work? Mm-hmm. Like we have all these like ad funded users and you know, we weren't really getting that much money from the ads, and you know, and then we're like kind of praying that they would convert to premium and we'd like make money back from them. And and there was always like you know, this argument, like very few people actually use premium. So, like, you know, does it actually make any sense? And so I remember this was like one of the first things I ever did, like in my career, like working on data. I was like just like, let's look at a cohort plot, and I didn't know the name back then. Like I was just like, okay, I'm just gonna plot like the percentage of users that convert to premium, but like I'm gonna pick like a cohort of people that like joined a certain month, and I'm just gonna track them over time, and then you saw this like beautiful like you know linear curve, where like every month like these people, you know, just, the premium conversion just kept going up and up, and. I mean, this was like at the time, like Spotify was raising, I, I think their B round or whatever, and and you know, this went straight into the board deck. It was like a big part of like investor presentations, and 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 I like to think, you know, it did make a huge difference at that time. I mean, I don't know, but like I, I, I you know, I, I think you know. To me, like that was like one of the, one of the first like sort of gratifying uh, like things I've done in the sense like I felt like actually like what I do has some sort of meaningful impact and I got hooked I'm like because <laughs> I, I, I up until then I considered me to be this like you know value like algo driven like I like to solve technical problems type of person but I I think that was like a first time I realized like actually this is kind of cool like I found something in data that has like a meaningful impact on building a company. And and so that, you know, and then I just kept going after that, like, you know, like, how can I find more things? Like, how, how can I like, discover insights? And, uh, you know, it was fun.
1: That's a really beautiful story. That's exactly, you're the hero we didn't deserve, but the hero we needed by bringing us that story. <laughs> but I totally relate to uh, the, the cohort thing. I remember like, I mean, th- and I guess that touches a little bit on, like I, I remember um, thinking when you were delivering the intro, it's interesting to think, of people's different paths into going into data. And so for, in your case, it sounds like you went from the sort of developer world into becoming uh, a data specialist, data scientist, data, whatever, whatever, whatever data we want to call it. <laughs> data has something, data person, <laughs> um, And so obviously we don't have all of the, you know, the words and the vocabularies. And I remember an exact same experience yep. with like, What cohort analysis? What? (laughs) Even though you've you've heard about cohorts before, but you sort of probably just never put it in context with like product analytics or like user experience analytics or things like that. I don't know.
0: Cohort analytics has been a consistent theme throughout my life. Where like I've like plotted something as a cohort and like blown someone's mind. They're like, (laughs) wait a minute, you can look at it that way. (laughs) <laughs> like, and I still feel like, you know, it's, I mean, now it's like, you know, a lot of people do it, but still, like, I feel like there's, like, sometimes, like, people really, they're like, wait, wait a minute, that's, like, pretty cool. Yeah,
1: like,
0: I, I feel like, you know, and survival analysis, which is sort of a related type of analysis, like, I think it's such an underappreciated aspect of, like, data analytics these days. Yeah. It's not even, like, rocket time, I mean, it's, like, pretty straightforward, like, just, you know, sorting events by time and, like, kind of grouping it and, you know.
1: Exactly. It's really powerful. Um, for. Whoever's listening, can you tell us what survival analysis is, since you mentioned it?
0: Yeah, I mean, survival analysis is like, you know, as the name implies, it's about like the sort of inevitability of death. And like, (laughs) you know, like comes from sort of medical research on and, and like looking at like, you know, if you, I mean, I don't know, like maybe this is like me making up a story, but like if you administer a drug, like then like looking at, okay, like what percentage of people survive and like maybe look at a control group and a test group. And, you know, the problem is like some of these people like, have not died yet so what, what can we infer right like if they haven't died for a really long time like maybe that's a good thing so in, in like tech businesses I, I tend to think it's like the other way around it's not like deaths it's like conversions instead so you kind of flip it upside down and instead you look at like uh you know conversions after a certain time and and it, what ends what, so up being always like challenging with these types of analysis is like you often end up like for the sort of crude way to, to analyze a lot of these things is like you know you have some sort of complicated model you're trying to understand like who converts and who doesn't convert and and like what is the outcome variable you're trying to track and, and it's kind of like both like conversion but it's also time to conversion in a very crude way would it be to like okay actually we're going to look at conversion rate at, at like thirty days out. But if you're doing that, you're kind of throwing away a lot of information because you might actually have people that convert like earlier or people who haven't converted at all after 29 days or whatever. And, and like you're kind of throwing out a lot of that ability to like learn quicker, which is called like censoring in survival analysis. You, you have this like left censoring uh, and right censoring. This idea that like you've only observed a certain person up to a certain point, but they might still convert in the future. You don't know. And, and so survival analysis lets you deal with this in kind of a nice, consistent way where you can you can build like cohort curves and, and incorporating the sensor data, you know, the data from people who haven't maybe converted yet, but maybe will convert in the future and, and look at, you know, two different cohorts and, and and say something much, much quicker than you would otherwise would have uh, said, you know, earlier than 30 days or whatever. And then, you then you know, there's all this like science, you can get into like more complicated models. There's like starting with Kaplan-Meier, but then, you know, there's like cost proportional hazard and you can start to fit like the better, I spent a lot of time like building like a, a thing that fit like viable distribution because it turned out that actually you know very beautifully approximated like the commercial curves and and that actually ended up like saving you know like improving like our ad performance by like you know in a way that like saved us millions and millions of dollars every month and so you know these things can have a very large impact if you do it right
1: exactly and I think uh, you know when you're bringing this up and your magic moment around your first court analysis I mean I think the the birth of these for each individual is probably when you just Think of segmenting by a specific dimension. You're like, hmm, interesting. What if I filter out these people? Or what if I filter out by that? Yeah. And then you reach the stage of you like, you start to develop like a, a skill or take time to do survival analysis because you've learned some things about like how that works and how you can treat different courts in a different manner. How can we help people reach this discovery sooner?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I've tried to blog a few times, uh, so I have some blog posts on the topic. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think there's probably a better tools could be needed. Like, you know, like I, I think there's probably an opportunity to build like sort of, you know, a an, an cohort analysis tool that could be, you know, its own startup. Like, I, and um, you know, through more sort of blogging and teaching and knowledge sharing, hopefully, you know, the, the, these things uh, permeate through the, you know, as as tools.
1: The all-encompassing data community (laughs) of the internet.
0: Correct. Yeah.
1: Okay. Awesome. Maybe a quick follow-up question on this: Like, uh, what was your role when you did this? Like, what 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 were you working on when you stumbled upon doing this?
0: I mean, I kind of mixed up like a lot of different experiences. Like, you know, it started like as I said, there's been my whole career. Like, so part of it was like doing it at at Spotify in the early days. Like, you know, later it was like you know me as a CTO, just like you know looking at data. At better, you know, I I, I'm, I have a math background, so like you know, I, I started realizing you know you can use viable distributions for these things. So so it's it's been something that's recurred you know recurring throughout my entire career, like at different roles.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you already mentioned it a little bit, like when you joined Spotify, you thought you wanted to work on or or you would work on the recommendation algorithm that first time around, but then you had more pressing issues, and then you started building a data team, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like looking back then, like Spotify's like main breakthrough and like the main utility people use it for is like, you want to click play on a track in the cloud and then it like, you know, you get the music and, you know, and that is the like magic moment of Spotify. And so, you know, like what we we sort of realized, like Spotify had like more urgent issues, you know, making that work and, you know, also just like raising money and, you know, because money is the sort of oxygen of any startup. And so... I think it made sense to not do recommendations for a while. And I think what's important to remember is like advanced machine learning is often something that just makes something that already exists a little bit better. It's not something that like enables you to do that thing in the first place. And so, you know, I'm I'm very happy in the end. Like I, I do think that the music recommendations at Spotify makes Spotify, you know, X percent better. But, you know, it's not the, like, thing in itself that is the magic of Spotify, I think. You know, it, it's the sort of thing you built on top of it that makes it extra magic.
1: Discover uh, Weekly. Oh, my God. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's very good stuff. And when you realized that, was there a data team at place at Spotify? Or were you the person that went, like, I think... No, no, no. We, I,
0: I built it up. I built it up. I, I proposed it, and 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 you know, and initially, like there was a you know push to, to build a team focused on reporting, and, and, and like my argument was like, why don't we broaden the, the mandate and, and make it about sort of product analytics and business intelligence and all kinds of stuff, and so I, I managed started managing that team. Uh, I was pretty young, like twenty five or something like that, and it wasn't a particularly big team. I think we were like four people in the team in the end when I moved to New York. But uh, I mean, now it's like I think two three hundred people, probably at Spotify or something like that, and, uh, probably even more. So, so it was fun like and this was back in the days like no one was really doing data like there wasn't any like you know patterns there wasn't really like best practices we kind of just like did whatever we needed to <laughs> and it was like the tools were terrible it was all like Hadoop and like awful things like running like even basic queries like took you know hours but I guess you know we we did what we could with the tools we had and and you know I'm I'm glad to see that like these these days it's not quite as bad <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. uh, But that's a really good point. Uh, I relate heavily to this. Um, I know we talked about it a little bit earlier. There's a lot of people, everyone in their own corner, slightly inventing the wheel a little bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, And I wish they didn't. I mean, you know, it would be nice if someone could just do it for them. Right.
1: Yeah. And we're approaching that. I mean, we're just everyone is knowledge sharing so heavily about this right now. And this is maybe a good segue into, you know, how do you see that the industry has changed Uh, i like to think about it from like even just like a small period of like two years because we are moving super rapidly but also from this perspective of like you now have what like 13 years going on right now
0: yeah yeah i've been coding for almost 30 years but yeah 13 14 years something like that working as an engineer yeah. And, and, and like in the data world, like, of course, many things, I mean, when I started working, like the cloud didn't exist or anything like that. And, and I, you know, data warehouses were like, it was the only one that existed was Oracle. And like, if you wanted to do anything as a startup, like, you know, most people did Hadoop and it was it was terrible. I, I think, you know, like we've come a long way, like, you know, it's so much easier to work with data. I think, I mean, particularly like zooming in the last two years, like, I, I guess like the big transformation has been like, probably like the sort of, Snowflake DBT combo feels like it's like so dominant these days, and I, I think you know to me it's like almost like you know in in hindsight maybe like an obvious thing like you know why didn't we get that sooner and and maybe part of it was like you know people we didn't quite have SQL as a data warehouse that this way but like to me that's been the sort of most interesting transformation in the last two years like the the sort of wildfire spread of DBT and and like how clearly it solves the problem that a lot of people had, right?
1: I wonder how big also a part of that growth has been their strategy of really focusing on the community.
0: I think it's huge. And and I think, you know, I mean, in general, I feel like it's less about the community, but like more like, I feel like it's like almost like creating a narrative of like, sort of a dominant platform and like, you know, a sort of a movement. And, and I, like I almost like feel that way when I look at like the the sort of positioning of DBT as like you know it's a tool for data or for for analytics engineer like they almost like created this like roll out of nowhere like I think there was a lot of people throughout you know many companies sort of you know they weren't really sure like who am I like what am I working on and then DBT <laughs> is like you're an analytics engineer. Like this is how you do it, and like, and it, you know, there's like a certain movement a- aspect to it where, like, you know, now like all these people are like, yeah, I'm an analytics engineer, and like, and then you <laughs> all the other companies are now like latching onto that and like, yeah, this is like the new data stack, like we're part of it too, and like, you know, and and like you get this like sort of interesting sort of you know follow-on effect where like everyone's like trying to you know cruise on that like that that trend, right? So I, I don't know where it's going to end, like where, where we're going, but I, I think it's been really interesting to observe.
1: Yeah, that's a really good positioning of it. It's a sense of belonging, almost. If we look at the, what is it, like the Maslow pyramid of needs, it's like, you know, the first thing is like, don't die. And like yeah, no, the, yeah violence in your life is the second layer. The first layer is like, have enough food so you don't die. The third one is a sense of belonging. Yeah. So,
0: and then I think the highest one is like self-actualization, right? Or, or something like
1: that? Yeah, it's something like that. Exactly. So they're sort of building us on the journey of that. Yeah. So that's, that's a great identification. I would love to maybe move a little bit into sort of data cultures now. Um, this is a good segue into that. Like, what are the roles in, in companies and sort of how people build their teams and things like that? You also talked about, like, um, when we were talking about how analytics are broken, you mentioned that that sort of look also is a, it's a people problem. Yeah. I'll just, you know, open with this. I don't trust this data. <laughs> it's such a common statement. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, why is that? And how can people swallow that?
0: I kind of like it. Like, cause in a way it's like, I'd rather have like, you know, it's like the scientific discourse. Like the whole point is like, you know, someone proposes like a thesis and then other people go and scrutinize it. Is that right? Is that not right? Like, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing where if like people don't trust the data and, and you know, and, and my, you know, I'd rather have like, too many people making too many conclusions about data that may be wrong, than like too few people even looking at data. Yeah. So I, I, I'm sort of you know pro like having like a you know a, a, a constructive disagreement and, and arguments and, and trying to did this you know and what I've seen that really work is like when you have that sort of mutual respect and admiration and and, and like this platform of, of trust of people, then you know if those people argue about something, then it's like you're not like trying to like put down a person, you're trying to like together find the truth. And that's like actually a good thing. Like you're like arguing about like, I don't trust what you're saying, but like, I w- you know, I'm arguing because I want to figure out, I'm also interested, what is the truth here? And, and that like, I think, you know, that's the sort of, to me like the aspiration that everyone should try to get to, right?
1: Yeah, I love that perspective. That's a fresh perspective. So when people say, I don't trust this data, that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, but but to answer your question, like, why is that? I don't know, like, you know, I've, I've seen so many mistakes, like people sort of, t- you know, take, like, correlational things and, like, present it as if it's, like, you know, causal. And, and, and you know, and, and, and like, or, or, like, making assumptions, like, you rolled out a feature, okay, like, look at it, like, pre-post, like, here's, you know, like, th- there's a lot of just, like, kind of sloppy analytics that I think is being done. And I think, you know... I've I've actually seen a lot more of that than, like, you know, technical issues. Like, you know, yeah, sometimes, of course, you have, like, technical data gathering problems. uh, But but more so, I've seen, you know, issues where people make sort of implications of data, like, from purely correlational or, or, like, other sort of, you know, sloppy kind of, you know, conclusions.
1: Interesting. So you're saying when people don't trust the data, it's more often when someone is actually trying to make a... Statement about some truth, rather than when like they are literally just trying to dig into the data and the data is broken.
0: Yeah, I mean like the the times when like I've had these like good arguments about data. It's like when someone finds like a really strong relationship, you know, and then like the argument is like, is this actually like causal or is this just like some random like weird thing that you can explain because there's some confounding thing. I mean, this is like one example, but like you know. So it's a starting point, but I, I think I rarely like I think it's good to be a little skeptical when you see like, you know, a very impressive result somewhere.
1: Yes. And like to take it a step back, I think typically when I see very impressive results or very terrible results, my first assumption is like mm, there's something wrong with the data behind this. <laughs>
0: yeah. You should you should. Oh, yeah, exactly. You should doubt it.
1: Yeah, because it's very difficult to get your data right.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Awesome. So maybe moving that into also like, who is then working with the data, Uh, you've now touched on like the org structures a little bit at Spotify. And that's a famous example, obviously, the org structures at, at Spotify. And then, of, of course, at Better, I'm curious to hear how you scaled up the team at Better and how the data team was involved there and what the org structure was. Can you maybe just share a little bit those two examples? Like, what was the org structure data-wise? How did data work with product and engineering in those two companies? Were they integrated with the product teams or were they separate teams and things like that?
0: No, I mean, I mean, first of all, Spotify, I left Spotify six years ago. So I, I think this is, you know, somewhat dated. But like at that time, it was this fully centralized data team. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that was, in retrospect, bad because everyone had to come to me and ask for help. And like, I made this sort of discretionary decisions and, you know, like, who am I going to help or not? And, and I, I think, that, you know, in retrospect, I think people like didn't feel like they got the support they needed. And so I, I, I think that created a lot of unnecessary pain. I wish I would have spent a lot more time, like sort of building up, you know, more of like here's your backlog, and you know, here's your resources, and here's some self-service tools. I think I did a better job at better doing that. What I ended up with is instead, like, I, I ended up still having centralized data teams, but tried as much as possible to decentralize the backlog management. So I had sort of embedded data scientists or data engineers, like, working together with other teams, like in particular product managers, but also many other cases, even you know, teams like finance or whatever. Marketing, a good example too, mm-hmm. where you know they would be their like main sort of point of contact in, in terms of like what I'm actually working on. Whereas like you still have the sort of mothership that sort of helps supervise like are you know are, are we doing analysis in the right ways and you know are we contributing back to the data platform in the right way. And but 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 like day to day like work was like more like your identity is more like no, like you're working with the marketing team that that's like you know your goal is to like you know help marketing or whatever, but you're a data engineer or data scientists and, and don't forget that yeah and, and I think that's like as good as it gets like I'm sort of you know n- never love like hybrid approaches but I, I do think for data it, it is a weird case where like clearly there is like a set of like very specialized knowledge you need in order to be good at data but also you know to some extent like that skill is being needed by you know a very completely different type of team.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so this, uh, you know, having a centralized team, but also embedded the hybrid model, it empowers both the professional growth of the data folks, but also empowers and makes sure that the communication paths are super strong and that each team is empowered to make good data decisions. And even furthermore, like the fact that you specialize in finance or marketing or something, it just makes you a better ally for that team.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and I think it's worth to be aware of the drawbacks, right? Like it is very hard as a manager to know what your direct reports are doing if they're spread out over like 10 teams. And and that's something I saw at Spotify too, like in this matrix model, like it's it's very hard to have like good accountability, and also good recognition of good work. And, and so managers do need to spend an even more time like thinking about like, how am I making myself available? How am I keeping my direct reports accountable? And how am I like recognizing the good work? Like it. It's very hard as a manager when you have this sort of embedding model.
1: So that's a good input. And I want to ask a follow-up question of that. So it sounds like, and I assume you're talking about better here, they did report to, like, ultimately they reported to the CTO. And um, was there like a data person, a data leader also that reported to you that they reported directly to or something like that?
0: In the end, there was a data leader in between me. Like I managed the data team directly for quite some time, given that I had a lot of background in, in data, and, and the team was quite small for a long time. And but then, in the end, like you know, in the, my last year or so, we had data leaders. So
1: is it right then that you were managing a bunch of different product teams as the CTO, uh, a set of engineering teams basically that had did they also have product managers and things like that reporting? to you or did they report to like no
0: they, they reported into the product they had a product
1: okay um and so the data people on the teams they were embedded in those teams but reported directly to you correct and even when you hired a data leader in between those teams would report to you or some sort of a, an engineering leader maybe that reported to you but the data folks would still report to the data
0: leader yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, I strongly think that data teams should be a part of tech. I mean, what they're building is, you know, writing code. And, you know, in, in the last few years, it's shifted away a little bit from like, you know, less code and more like, you know, less like Python and more SQL. But it's still like, to me, it's like, it's production pipelines. It's, you know, it's version control. It's like, you know, pull requests. It's, a, it's, it's, it's code to me. And it's the same sort of engineering mindset. And and I think it sets them up for success to report into tech.
1: That is a really great observation, and it sparks two follow-up questions from me. First one, sort of tapping into what I was mentioning from your intro, you entered data as a developer, like you were developer by training, had been doing a lot of software engineering, things like that. How did you build your data team? Did you recruit from that angle? Did you recruit someone who had maybe like a different type of experience? What are the roles, backgrounds?
0: Yeah, Actually, my background is a little bit weird. I studied physics, but I, I grew up like coding all the time. So, like, I have a little bit of a weird background. I, I think, yeah, but like physics actually did help me a lot, like going to data because I, I obviously know a little bit more about math than someone from with a computer science background. But, but, but yeah, like I, th- I think you know, in terms of building up the team, like my feeling—I mean, this goes for like any team, right? Like you know, the engineer, like software engineers or data team. Like you want, like early on, like you need full stack people as much as possible because you don't know what you're going to need from day to day. Uh, And you're going to need people who are like flexible, can jump around as much as possible. So, I very intentionally, in the earliest days of building up a data team, I was very intentionally put to like the role description is data engineer Mm -hmm. because my my feeling was like if I hire a data engineer who's also like kind of like entrepreneurial and cares about the business, like they can sort of like build a platform while doing the analytics and like let the analytics work kind of inform the platform they're building. And they can be this like full stack person who can like jump around like they can take, you know, today I'm going to look at this thing. And oh, by the way, actually, I need, in order to do that, I need to ingest this new data set and like index it and like blah, 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 and like build a pipeline and then go back and do the analytics. And so, and so I, I did that for almost two years, like we had a combined team doing both data engineering and data science. And I called everyone data engineer, even though like they're probably more like data science, like in, in like what they did day to day. But, but data science these days has been such an overloaded term, like that. That I, I I found that in a way it was like a little bit easier. Like if you want to hire a full stack data scientist, it's actually easier to put data engineer on the role description and and just look at the people that, that apply for the role. And I mean, of course, we did a lot of sourcing as well.
1: Yeah, but you're touching on a really interesting subject there, which is like sort of. I feel like there's a you know a lot of discussion lately about like. Um, bringing in people that have soft skills, and then they can learn the hard skills. But you talked also about like, okay, you put data engineering in the role description, and then you filtered sort of and recruited for also like entrepreneurial mindsets and things like that. How do you find those people? How do you filter for those people?
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, like some controversial opinion, maybe, but like I think soft skills are in abundance and like hard skills are scarce. And so like I mm-hmm. think it's much better to, to hire for hard skills and then, you know, and then filter out on like those people having sort of a base level of soft skills than you know teaching people hard skills, which can be extremely hard. You know, especially if it takes a lot of experience, like learning about like how to work with data or like learning you know, statistics or machine learning, like whatever. That's hard. So I always wanted to hire people who are like the best people early stage in a tech team in, in a data team, I think are people who are, they understand data, like they're like, okay at like the numbers, they understand like software engineering, they don't have to be like the world's best like distributed system, like database, like whatever, but like, they're like decent at like, they know how to use Git or whatever, like, you know, but most importantly, they're excited about like the business, they're like excited about like the outcome and like how my analysis is like driving business outcomes and like kind of like they want to find a truth in the data. They're like data journalists. They're like, you know, what's lurking in the data? Like, what can we find today that's going to have a huge impact? And there's no like, you know, easy way to, to filter for that. But like, I I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to filter out people on the other side of the spectrum. You know, sometimes you start talking to people and, and they're like, you know, like I, I think there's like a spectrum of like goal oriented people versus like tool oriented people. And it's like pretty easy to like determine that someone is like tool oriented. If they're really really like really, really like super obsessed about like, functional programming, like you know, maybe they're really smart and that's fine. But like I think there's always gonna be a like a, a conflict of interest if you know today the type of work we need as a business to be successful doesn't have anything to do with functional programming. That might be a problem. We might have conflicts of interest here. Mm-hmm. So like for those reasons like I think it's very dangerous to hire these like tool oriented people. Same goes for something like machine learning. If you make your career pursuit to you know improve your knowledge in machine learning that's fine like there's a lot of like large established companies where they need people like that at a startup that might be like very very dangerous to hire a person like that cuz they might think you know everything needs machine learning that's not true like 10% of things need machine learning so what i want to hire is like the people who like maybe they know machine learning but for them it's just a tool in the toolbox and the real goal is to you know figure out what the business need and build those things and if that involves like going through an excel file and like you know manually classifying you know text message, like whatever it is, like, you know, and, and they have to do that for three days, like if it drives like a really important business outcome, like they're happy to do that. And so, you know, I, I I like to kind of go deeper and like, ask people like, you know, how do you feel about working on like, you know, boring things, you know, unsexy things, like, how, how, what's like a good story is something you found in data that was like surprising or, and how did you find it? And I, I, I you know, like trying to go deeper into like, what what is motivating this person?
1: Mm-hmm. I love that identification. I also want to say just data journalist, I relate so heavily to it. It's like a, it's a person that is extremely curious to learn some new things and sort of find some value. And I think this, what you just said, are you okay with working on boring things? It's sort of like a filter for like, people are okay, sometimes not over engineering. It's like an indicator that they won't over engineer everything, basically.
0: Yeah. And and it's like so clear, it's like certain like cultures are like, actually not that way like you know certain startups have like cultures that very much like emphasize like solving hard technical problems and promoting the people that do that and, and i think it's actually quite destructive to do that you know and, and there's nothing wrong like i love a hard technical problem but like i i don't you know it's a means to an end right
1: exactly really great point uh, so i mean i can't have a conversation with eric bernardson without talking about the incredible blog post or short story or what should we call it <laughs> um, that you released earlier this year. Terrible. <laughs> and like in that story, you are covering all of those journeys, you know, the the journey from discovering all of these different problems and sort of putting out the right fires where needed. Yeah. And you're also now like just now when we're talking about this, you're talking about who are the right people to do that. Like if you would Put out a recommendation for someone who is like about to take on a role like that, and vice versa for someone who's trying to hire for a role like that. Like, what's your recommendation?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think again, it's a sort of maybe the data journalist role we talked about. Like, I I, I think you know those are the people that I've seemed to be most successful. Are the people who are like, yeah, like they're good with numbers. They're like okay with stats. Like they're okay with like software engineering. But like beyond everything, they're like just driven by this like pursuit of the truth. Like, they're like, I'm going to win the Pulitzer Prize. I'm going to find some, like, you know, smoking (laughs) gun in the data.
1: I'm going to get my stats into the board deck. (laughs) Right. Now, I mean, like, the interesting thing also about this is... You wrote this story and it's like a, it triggers many people with their PTSD. I know. <laughs> just a, and like the interesting thing about it is like, what is so fun about it still? Like, why do we really love doing this? Like, this is a, for me, when I look back from, for example, on my quiz of time, you know, probably every week I was like, What why am I doing this? Like, why don't I just like go, you know, build a house somewhere or like be a farmer or whatever. Uh, but there's something that pulls us back in into this like super, especially then when the data role of a company was just so much still being shaped. So what do you think, like...
0: I mean, I don't know, like, I, I think there's a part of everyone in tech who's like, you know, whole career purpose is that, like, they see, like, incompetence around them, and they want to, like, kind of, like, fix that and, like, show how it could be done better.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? Yeah. Like, even though, like, no one would admit it, like, that's kind of, like, you know, I think a big part of, like, what drives people to, like, advance in their careers is, like, they get to a certain level, and they're like, what's actually going on there? That's not very good. Like, I bet I can do better. And I think, you know... Like, with data, it's been especially painful, I think, you know, as, as a lot of people, like, go into that industry and, like, look at what's actually going on. Like, there's so many, like, weird things that are sort of evidently not good. And and so I think, you know, I don't know, like, maybe that's what pulls people back, is, like, like the sort of feeling that, like, they want to show how it could be done better, right?
1: Yeah, I like that. Uh, so something about leaving a legacy.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh,
1: if I talk about, like, um, for myself, it was, like, always ultimately, because you mentioned earlier that like, okay, you joined the first time around before you made a brief brief stop uh, at a hedge fund. You were there to build a recommendation engine, which is super exciting. And it's one of the things that, for example, when I joined QuizUp, I was like, yeah, I'm hired as a data analyst, but I'm going to be working on also super cool stuff that they don't even know about yet. But, (laughs) But obviously I had the same experience as you, which is there are more pressing issues to be solved here. Right. So I think like ultimately, potentially what was also driving me was like, I'm building a better world for myself where in the future I can work on even more cool stuff or some of the people I am working with can work on all the cool stuff when we figured out the plumbing.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: So it's like a carrot.
0: Yeah. Beautiful world carrot. Yeah. You passed the marshmallow test. You're like, <laughs> you held off and then you get the marshmallows. <laughs>
1: Exactly, awesome. On this on this note of the data teams and like the where do they report to and what are their roles and you touched on like the the fact that you typically always frame the role as a data engineer. You also had a, a great recent article about what is the right level of specialization. Yeah, with some great analysis of some kitchen. <laughs> Kitchen cooks and, and cutting onions and stuff like
0: that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, and it's like it's it's funny because like, I, yeah, I mean, I just said like, you know, I think data engineers like one way to frame what I want, but on the other hand, like, I also think data engineers should not exist. Like, I mean, in the <laughs> sense that like, you know, like if I look at like so much of the work what like data engineers do across companies is like building platforms that they should not be in the business of doing, mm-hmm. and, and I think what's what's sort of the sad truth about, like, data these the, these days, it's, like, it's almost become, like, a superset of, like, software engineering. It's, like, you know, in order to be a full-stack data person, I'm just going to call it data person for now, like, you, you kind of need to know, like, you know, all the data science and all the software engineering and maybe a bunch of other stuff around, you know, whatever. So, so that's a bad thing, and because it's full, like, <laughs> the stack is full. Like, you know, you can't fit more stuff in there. And, and so, and, and, like, I think there's a lot of reasons why, like, actually, like, why do we like normalize things around like what software engineer is doing? Like, why do we like think of this as like an extension of software engineering? Like, there's a lot of things actually that maybe in the data world is very different that you know we shouldn't be doing. And and I think you know one of the things that I think, I mean, this is pr- broken even in the software engineering world. But like you know sort of. Infrastructure tooling, the, the stack right now, I, th- I think is, you know, has like very poor abstractions. Like, there's just so much like garbage you need to learn about like Kubernetes and Docker and Terraform and, and all these other tools to like actually like build like infrastructure. And like, you know, to me, the vision has always been like, how can we get people to spend 100% of the time thinking about business logic? Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I, I don't know, like, I'd imagine this may be like a poor sort of, you know, Terrible, like crude uh, version of like, you know, history. But like, I'd imagine, like, when electricity came, maybe it was like the same thing. Let's say you're like a garment factory and you're like, wow, there's like new electricity thing. Like, I bet it's like really cool. Like, you know, we could use it to hook it up. Like, we don't have to have, you know, uh, windmills like powering our like uh, whatever. I don't even know what the term is. But like, in order to build your own like electricity, like I bet you have to hire like a bunch of mechanics. You have to hire a bunch of like you know people like understanding how generators work, and a bunch of people like build it. In, you know, but over time, like those things are just like you know become commoditized. So you're just like you know buying a power line from the power company. You just plug it in, and all these engines are built in China, and you just like buy them on Alibaba, and they get shipped to you. And like, and then you know, and, and those things like are now just like things we take for granted. But like. You know, all these like weird sort of professions that had to deal with like every factory building their own like power supplies, you know, went away. And and I think, you know, there's always this thing where like new technologies come. Like, you know, first everyone has to hire all these like specialists that do it themselves. But over time, you know, those things tend to factor out into platforms and separate companies, just like a power company, and then you just buy it from there. And then people can go back to what they're good at, which is like, I don't know, managing factories or designing clothes or whatever it is, and then like do that. Right. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was the best analogy, but like that's a little bit how I think about it in sort of historical context.
1: Yeah. I like that analogy. It's like uh, I talk about it sometimes with just literally with Avo when I'm explaining it to like a person that's not very much in the data space or even just the software space. It's like uh, we're building tools for developers. So that, you know, imagine if you're a chocolate maker and the first thing you would have to do is like build the whole machine to mix chocolate before you can even just start about thinking. Totally. But like you made a case for specialization and like having everyone on the team be able to do basically anything that needs to be done on the data team, sort of. Obviously, I think like I agree with you, there is like some level of specialization that you Want to have on the team, you want to allow people to grow in the trajectory that they want to grow. But, like, would you literally recommend against, for example, teams having special roles, data teams having special roles? I,
0: I... All of what I'm saying is like somewhat aspirational, right? Like I, what I'm saying is like I love a, I would love a future where like there's less specialization. I think people should always strive for less specialization. When I started building up my tech team at Better, like I didn't hire front-end and back-end people. I only hired full-stack people. Exactly. And then, you know, over time like we we're like, "Oh yeah, but like, you know, someone really needs to like think about CSS and whatever." And then we started hiring front-end and back, you know, separate. And and I think that goes for everything, right? And and I think where a lot of this drives, you know, it's like the sort of latency in the you know of like human communication and the coordination costs of like, you know, assigning different people tasks and sort of bouncing it back and forth. So 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 it's sort of, you know, the specialization argument also like applies within teams, but also like across teams. Like I, I think, you know, everything else equals. It's much better to have full stack people that can do everything themselves. <laughs> Yeah. But let's say you don't have that, and let's say you have a bunch of specialized, you know, people like doing a lot of different things. Then still, everything else equals like it's better to have them in the same team because, like, you know, because then at least like you have like roughly like the resources like management is still like easier. Like coordinating things between two teams, mm-hmm. like you know, the, the sort of latency it takes is like weeks. Coordinating things between people within the same team, the latency is like I don't know a day at most, right? Mm-hmm. Coordinating things between the same person. Doing the same thing, like the latency is like you know minutes or seconds or whatever. Like it's just you know. So so I, I and I think you know when, when you're building a startup or any company like that for that matter, like the, the, these coordination costs like they add up and they cost all these like conflicts and you know and, and make it harder to, to to get things done and 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 you know then you add, add, add all these like project managers on top of that and then they they end up like needing coordination and so so to me it it comes down to like the ability to like you know, get things done in an autonomous way that doesn't require all these like coordination costs. And, and then to some extent also flexibility, right? Like you don't know from day to day what you need. And and so, you know, having people who can do like a little bit of everything makes sense. Exactly. I guess the third thing would also be to some extent also like many companies, like you don't want people who are like driven by like a particular tool. You want people who are driven by outcome. And I, I think that goes a little bit hand, hand in hand with like hiring generalists, right? Mm-hmm i'm not like an absolutist here like i'm making more like a completely relativistic argument here like everything else equals like less specialization is good is kind of my argument
1: exactly yeah i remember you explicitly added that disclaimer in the blog post after you got some backlash after the proclamation on twitter which is funny yeah but yeah i mean i totally agree with you because i recently also and just like as a data point into this conversation i recently had a conversation with a friend about recruiting on an engineering team. And like the premise of the conversation was also a little bit around like how companies can structure their recruiting and interview processes to find the right people for the team. Because we don't want to exclude people that don't yet have the experience that prove that they are right for the role. First of all, because it doesn't scale, you know, there's just like a, there's such immense growth in like the, all of the different roles in, in software. So you really need to be hiring, you know, young people coming out of college or whatever. And obviously they won't have the experience that you need for the team. Yeah. And then the other thing is like, um, it won't allow people to penetrate the specialization ever. So like, I totally agree with the mindset that it works better particularly for early stage teams if they try to hire a generalist i mean there might be a time in your like life as a development team or a software organization that you need a really specialized infrastructure engineer to solve a specific problem for sure but that is far from the first people on your team for example
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and it goes beyond like team building too. Like, I think a lot about it. Like now that I'm like thinking about the tools that I can build for other companies to buy, like my goal to a large extent is also like to build the tools that enable less specialization. Like, can I do the things that you know currently force specialization, and so that you know people don't have to think about it because like, you know, all those reasons like why people specialize, like to me, are like kind of bad and like, you know, should be avoided. And like, if I can give the tools so people don't have to think about infrastructure, don't have to think about like all these things, like, you know, I, I think they can go back and like focus on business logic hundred percent of their time mm-hmm. aspirationally. So I think that'd be good. Like that, that's a sort of, you know, somewhat naive vision that I have in my head is like, you know, that's where we should try to get to always. Like if, if people are spending, you know, disproportionate time not doing business logic and like, Other stuff, like that's a bad thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. It brings me to wanting to ask you about any hot takes about titles in the data space. Uh, We've already sort of aligned in this conversation that we're not going to call them data scientists here on. We're calling them data persons, (laughs) at least in this conversation. But, like, I mean, okay, you hired data engineers. I find it interesting to hear your take on, like, when people advertise the role data scientist. How helpful is that?
0: I, I mean, I, I actually don't really think it's that important. Like, I, I think you know, long term, as like you know, roles sort of hopefully consolidate and despecialize. Like, if we end up with like fewer overall numbers of titles, like that would be a good thing. I don't care which one in the end. Like, is that role, you know, at, at better we had we ended up with both data scientists and data engineers, and that was fine, right? Like, and and. And I think that's fine. I, I don't know, like, I, I really don't have a strong point of view of, like, which title is the best one in the long run.
1: The one thing that I uh, think we might be approaching soon, but at least for a really long time, we were not there. When people were advertising for the role data scientists, I think uh, a lot of the time you would get someone that really did want to just, like, do research and, you know, work on their machine learning or something like that. And so I think that's one of the downsides of like, uh, but we might actually be approaching a reality in the world where when you see the role data scientist in a software company, then you can sort of understand what that means. Five years ago, I don't think that was the case.
0: I agree with that. Five years ago, if you put up a role description for data scientists, you would get about like a thousand applicants who all they wanted to do was to train machine learning models. Exactly. And so I agree with that. Like and 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 so that's again why I usually would call it data engineer. But like I, I think you're right. Like if you put up data scientists now, like there's a better like expectation of like the fact that like you know you might do some machine learning, but there's also many other things you will do.
1: Yeah. So expectations versus reality is closer today for the role data scientist than it was five years ago.
0: Maybe. Yeah, I think it hopes
1: so. <laughs> I want to maybe talk a little bit about like uh, because we're on the right track and it is an all encompassing data culture building uh, knowledge sharing podcast. So I want to go into practical things about because you already mentioned one of the things that you sometimes wish you had done even better and that you're recommending that teams do earlier, literally talking about analytics logging and releasing analytics for feature release. I think that's... That's like a, a thing. That's like a bastard. It's a bastard baby where the yeah. um, <laughs> where like uh, the the data person is responsible for making sure there is analytics in place for something, but they have absolutely no control over whether the analytics was actually in place when something was released. And then the software engineer, like th- this is, I'm talking very general, um, and like you know at an early maturity stage of a company, software engineers might not have interest in data or they see it as like something that's not relevant for the end user or something like that. And then you reach a different maturity stage where like it becomes a little bit more intertwined. Can you talk about analytics for product uh, releases and what that process looked like, for example, for better, when you already had like the Spotify experience, who is involved in planning analytics, implementing it, queuing it, analyzing it, prioritizing feature work based on data. And I'll set one more stage for the question. The reason why I think this is particularly interesting for product analytics is for many data sets, they don't change much over time, right? But product analytics data sets, they are ever changing because you're always changing our product. So can you shed some light on that?
0: Yeah, I, I guess I don't have like too much to say other than that, like it the, the sort of the the observation that here's really where the sort of embedding model makes the most sense. Like if you have a fully centralized data team, like you're always gonna have this like misalignment where like you know some software engineers are like you know releasing whatever they want to and then it's like this like centralized data team's job to like make sense out of it. And like they might not have like anything to like you know go by right like because there's like there's like a open loop there's no closed loop like the software engineers have like you know it's like a, a principal agent or whatever problem or, or something like that I, I don't know there's like misaligned incentives so that's where I think you know if you have an embedded model instead I don't necessarily think you solve hundred percent of it but I think at least like the sort of the, it becomes the product manager's job to make sure like whatever they're building is also like, you know, it's, it, the onus is on them to show the impact and the metrics. And and so, you know, so then they are going to go make the software engineers talk to the data person who's working with the product manager to make sure that, you know, whatever they're building is something that they're going to be able to like show had like whatever measurable impact on metric later. So I, I think that sort of works and it's probably as good as it gets. That's That's the thing I've seen in reality, like that can work.
1: Yeah, I could not agree more with that. It's about sort of bringing those stakeholders together. In practical terms, what did that process look like for Better or for Spotify?
0: I mean, I think it's more like, you know, like just making the own... If you align incentives, like things usually fall out. So like, let's say you have an embedded team, like like where like data engineers are embedded and they work with like feature teams. Then let's say you have a data-driven culture where it's the job of product managers to show the impact they're making through data, that's kind of all you need. Because like now the product managers like they know they're going to be measured, but you know they know like people are going to ask about the data, so they're going to go talk to the data engineer, like or the data analyst, or whatever or the data scientist, and the software engineer is going to go talk to them too. And so I, I think those are the tenets. Like that's it. Like I, I think you know that's enough. Like yeah. this should be the only two things you need.
1: You mean like set that stage, and then people will figure out the process.
0: Yeah, I mean I tend to think that like incentives matter and you know if you solve the incentives like you kind of automatically solve a lot of other downstream things, right?
1: Mm. That's a beautiful way of seeing it. I wish the entire world agreed with that <laughs> <laughs> or saw it that way.
0: Yeah, I mean it's sort of the same thing as like, you know, I always think about this is like people are like sort of the root cause of almost everything. Almost every dysfunction is like some sort of, you know, a uh, function of like misaligned incentives or, you know, could be information asymmetry or whatever it is. And like, it, it, if you go beyond like, you know, the sort of obvious things, like you often find some sort of like, you know, people problem like that behind, you know, the scenes. And and, and that's actually the real thing you should fix. Yes. Which is very hard. Yeah. And, and then, you know, an organization and accountability and mechanisms and, and all kind of stuff. Culture. But yeah. Culture is a big one.
1: Yeah. I guess like we've already touched a little bit on this, but you know, Can you list out some of the things that you wish existed or that uh, you wish you had, you know, back and better, for example?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's still sort of crazy to me, like how much time we spend, like any engineer spends on like infrastructure. And, And I think we're still like so early in that journey of like... Getting away out of like the the, the business of like thinking about resource management and provisioning and like you know and, and configuration and all that stuff like thinking about hundred percent business logic and I know that's sort of abstract but like you know the amount of like time now I mean Kubernetes is probably a little bit better than what we had before but like I look at it and it's like it's still kind of complicated and, like people spend a lot of time like debugging weird things and it's like that's hard. I don't know. Like, I think on the data side, like we've come a long way. There's like Snowflake, there's DBT, there's like all these like ETL tools, and and you know we're starting to have more like real time stuff like materialized, which is pretty cool. And and you know, I, I, but but like I, I still feel like we're still early, and it's still there's still so much of a time that's spent like kind of duct taping together a lot of different tools, like thinking about deployments, like thinking about productionizing things, like thinking about like you know how do we get these things working together. Like every single like data team that I talk to at at different companies are like sort of building the same internal platforms, you know, for self service, for metrics, for dashboarding. Like some of them are like starting to factor out into like startups and, and businesses offering these as a service. Uh, but to the extent that they're factored out, like they they tend to be often like kind of like what I think of as like widget type. Companies that you know over time, like you know, then the burden is like okay. Now we need to integrate these like thirty-five vendors, and that's a lot of work. And so, I don't know. I, I sort of you know wish for a world where there's like fewer set of like vendors that offer like more holistic things that sort of snap together in beautiful building blocks, and you know people don't have to think about the things that they shouldn't think about, and they can focus on like what is it that the business needs, and the, and then just like use platforms for everything else.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I guess it's like uh, we're in the fragmentation stage right now, but uh, you know we might be approaching a stage where things start to get so consolidated again.
0: I think so, and, and I think a fragmented thing to me is often a sign of massive demand but poor supply <laughs> in, in a way. Like it, it means like no one's like really cracked this. they not like how do we actually build like something that scales well and has like mm-hmm. good economics. But on the other hand, it means like there, there's a lot of demand, like you know, there's a lot of people paying for a lot of these like small vendors, and you know, and then that to me, I think is like a you know a very exciting market uh, to be in. As, as you know, now that I'm thinking about being in that market as a tools provider, I, I think you know there's a huge opportunity. I think yeah. clearly with the amount of demand for these tools.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is like, okay, can we just consolidate the role of a a data scientist so that they don't have to be super specialized and like, have to build all of the infrastructure as well?
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: And it sort of reminds me, I have to plug this in here. Our last guest was actually Josh Wills, who I know for a fact you once said was kind of interesting. (laughs) Which I find hilarious. I
0: I was referring to one of his tweets. (laughs) <laughs> and then he like put it on his like Twitter profile, like as yeah. if I was making a statement about him. So that's a backstory.
1: That's a very good additional backstory. But uh, I mean, he had this definition of a data scientist as a person who is better at statistics than any software engineer, and better at software engineering than any statistician. Does that make sense to you?
0: Yeah, that seems like Sort of Pareto frontier of you know those two axes. Like you're <laughs> slightly better in some way. You're on the efficient frontier.
1: Exactly. And I mean, you mentioned that your background is actually in uh, physics, it's not in computer science um, and math. And that's the same background as I have, like I have mathematics and a philosophy background actually as well. So maybe that's like a a good combination.
0: I do (laughs) not have that. So I I have nothing to say about philosophy. (laughs)
1: Uh, Let's pivot the show.
0: Yeah. (laughs)
1: But maybe sort of uh, to start wrapping things up, I'd like to talk a little bit about like sort of people's misconception uh, about data and what you wish people, more people knew about data and, and maybe data and product, specifically focusing on like data and product analytics. Um, and then, you know, uh, some things that people can do right. So why don't we start with what are people's biggest misconceptions about how data and product analytics works?
0: I mean, one sort of misconception, when we sort of touched on this, and I think this is pretty well understood at like startups, is to the extent that simple things are usually far more impactful than more complicated things, and 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 I think the average startup understands this really well, but I don't think that's necessarily clear in the broader world. I, I think there's a, like a if you go talk to you know the CIO or whatever CTO like a major like. Financial institution. I, I think there's often a desire to like feel like they've done everything they could, and like now it's time to get the AI to sprinkle the magic dust on top of it and get the you know. But but the truth is like they probably haven't at all done you know everything they could. They have no idea where are people dropping off in their conversion funnel, and like where are like people struggling on their website, like you know people can't log in, like whatever, like and, and so you know to me like you know one of the misconceptions I think in the in the in the broad world is like you know. I, I think, you know, when I think about like how my parents think about like us, you know, data people, like I, I think they sort of think of us as like these people like devising, you know, new mathematical, you know, relationships to model super advanced, like whatever, using fluid mechanics to understand. But, but like in reality, you're like, I'm like, no, I'm doing a scatter plot of like, you know, this dimension versus this dimension. And look at it. It's a little weird. So uh, that's not good. Like, let's show this to someone. And that's like, you know, can be such, you know, has such incredible value. And I think, again, like I think this is very well understood at startups these days, but maybe less so among the sort of general population, like to what extent data work is really like finding kind of crude things.
1: Exactly. Wow. I love that. First of all, just your framing of it. Simple things are usually more impactful than complicated things. And obviously it reminds me of the meme that's going on everywhere for all things right now, which is that like normal curve of intelligence and like (laughs) the stupid person does something and then uh, a medium range IQ does something super, super complicated. And then the very intelligent person does the same thing as the stupid person.
0: Yeah, I think that sort of data equivalent of that one would be that the sort of the the ends, the sides of the spectrum would say, "Look at a scatter plot," or I, I don't know, like like,
1: <laughs> exactly. plot, like
0: let's look at the chart. Like I, I don't know, and then the middle one would cry out and talk about like p-values and you know whatever you know random forests. I, I don't know.
1: Exactly, I could not agree more with that. To wrap things up, some advice for the people who are listening. What is the first thing teams should do to get their analytics right?
0: I think they should talk, think about the work structure first and then think about like you know the business goals first of all and then kind of like solve backwards from that like what what is your purpose? What are you getting hired for? Like how do you generate the most value? I, I sort of think aspirationally, like everyone should ask that every morning, just come into work and say, how can I increase the, the, the value of this business as much as possible? And that's like a very hard question to ask yourself and like not realistic at all. But I think, you know, there's some sort of theoretical model for like, you know, there's the, the, the sort of like about that, like, you know, everyone just like thinking about like, how can I act as a shareholder? How can I, you know, do what's right for the business? And, and I think if you do that, like kind of solve for that backwards, like you, you can usually think through like, okay. What are the problems we should prioritize? Like how are the, you know, what are the stakeholders we should talk to? You know, what are things that clearly are suboptimal right now that we should focus on? What and then you can ask the question, okay, what data do we need for that? And like how do we gather that? And then where do we put it? And how do we make it easier to like, you know, query it? And like, you know, and then you kind of, you know, then you're done.
1: I could not agree more. And case in point, we literally developed a meeting at QuizUp called the Purpose Meeting. <laughs> Which, like, okay, you're talking about the general purpose of the organization and your role, but ultimately, we wanted to apply the same thing for every single feature release. And literally, having us sit down like that, talking about the purpose of a release, merely for the goal of merging the stakeholders, like the product manager, the developer, the data scientist, and like into thinking what data do we actually need, but thinking about it like top down like that, it often actually sparked like a change in roadmap. Yeah. Just doing that train of thought in advance. So I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's super important.
1: Yeah, those are really good words to end this podcast episode with. Simple things are usually more important, impactful than complicated things. Yeah. And think about your purpose.
0: Yeah, I think that's what it's going to say in my grave one day.
1: (laughs) I love it. Awesome. Well, Eric, I want to thank you so much for taking the time
0: yeah it's fun i enjoyed it, it was a lot of fun
1: it was very enjoyable look forward to part two when we know a little bit more about burn co sure very exciting very exciting yeah
0: that's good uh, dog walking The uber for dog walking
1: <laughs> exactly thank you so much for joining us on the right track eric
0: thanks it's fun to be here
1: thanks for listening to the right track if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Keep the conversation going with us in the Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. You can learn more about Avo at avo.app, and please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter via AvoHQ.